Well, it's a pleasure to be with you this evening. Uh, thank you for coming out, and uh, I hope that you've been enjoying and benefiting from the worship so far. Um, I haven't met a, uh, mirac- uh, a molecular biologist on the way to the service this evening, but uh, um, I'm going to share, you something, share something with you that comes from a fisherman. Uh, now, sometimes fishermen have stories to tell about the one that got away, um, but this isn't a story about someone who got away, uh, but someone who's very present. Uh, I know you've been doing a short series on the Gospels, and this evening we come to John's Gospel. And if you want to open your Bible or follow the reading, we're going to read a passage from John chapter 12. Um, It comes more or less from the middle of the Gospel, and uh, it's picking up on a very important story within the Gospel to do with the raising of Lazarus to life again. And we're going to read about how his sister Mary reacts to what Jesus has done. So please uh, follow with me as I read from John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, A large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. 
So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. I'm thankful to Gary for the invitation to come along this evening and share with you something on John's gospel and particularly on this episode that comes in the middle of it. Gary may not be aware of this, but a few years ago I wrote a short book on the four Gospels. One reviewer um, who went under the name Bethel, a rather strange name to go under, but that's what he used or she used, wrote a short review consisting of three sentences. Uh, You can look this up on Amazon if you don't believe me. Um, Here's what two of them said. This book was too drawn out and it repeated most of what it said over and over again. It seemed as though he hadn't read the four Gospels. Well, That was a rather stinging criticism. I did take a little comfort from the fact that the third sentence had this to say. It also seems as though the author knew what he was saying. Try and put that one together. Fortunately, uh, Bethel's testimony to the quality of my book uh, hasn't scarred me too much. I'm not sure that others are likely to take it too seriously, especially when you see that there are several glaring spelling mistakes in the three short sentences that make it up. It's not a testimony that's likely to persuade many others, at least I hope not. Uh, It was the only one that was like that. Now, I want to turn your attention this evening to a very different kind of testimony. At the end of John's Gospel, the author has uh, something to say about what he writes. Here's what we read at the end of the Gospel. Um, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. And who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Where every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John's gospel you see is a testimony to who Jesus is. And interestingly, John introduces this theme of testimony near the beginning of his account. Within a few sentences of starting to write, he says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. 
He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. And as you read on in John chapter 1, we see how other people are introduced bearing testimony to who Jesus is. Andrew goes to tell his brother Peter about Jesus. Later, Philip goes to tell Nathaniel about Jesus. In John's Gospel, what people testify about Jesus is important. And much later in the Gospel, John provides a summary as to why he writes about Jesus. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants to present Jesus as the one who brings life. For John, Jesus is the life giver. Repeatedly in his gospel, John emphasizes that Jesus gives life. I suspect that most of you, if you're regular attenders at church, are likely to be familiar with John chapter 3 and verse 16. It's perhaps the best known verse in the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For John, Jesus is the source of eternal life. That's a remarkable claim. So how does John justify it? How does he present to us this idea that Jesus is the source of eternal life? Well, we don't have time to explore all of the ways in which John does this. Almost every chapter in his gospel has something to say about life. So for this evening, I want to focus on this remarkable incident that involves Jesus and this woman called Mary, who has a brother, Lazarus and a sister, Martha. We read in John 12 of how Mary comes and pours expensive perfume over the feet of Jesus. The event is a sequel to another remarkable event that stands at the center of John's gospel. Connecting the two halves of the gospel... 
John provides an extended account that centers on how Jesus raises Lazarus to life. It's an episode that encapsulates the core message of John's gospel. Jesus is the life giver. Lazarus is dead. Jesus brings him to life again. As you read John 11 and 12, you sense that Mary is on something of an emotional roller coaster. She has watched her brother Lazarus grow more and more ill. Eventually he dies. And we can sense that she and her sister Martha must have longed for Jesus to come and heal their brother. But it doesn't happen. The one who is supposed to be the source of life stays away. And Mary and Martha feel abandoned by Jesus. Sometimes we may feel the same. With her hopes dashed, Mary grieves with others the untimely death of her brother. When Jesus eventually returns, unlike Martha, she doesn't go out to meet him. She remains at home. Does that reflect something of her disappointment? Jesus had stayed away. He's come back too late. Perhaps. Yet, interestingly, when Jesus asks her to come, she comes out of the house and she falls at his feet. And like her sister Martha, she says what she's thinking. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. As grief overcomes her, Jesus is deeply moved. He weeps. And then something happens that Martha or Mary could never have imagined. Jesus brings Lazarus back to life again. What elation Mary must have felt. Her dead brother is restored to life again. It's not surprising that John puts this story of Lazarus at the center of his gospel. What better illustration could you have for the life-giving power of Jesus? And it's not surprising that Mary is grateful to Jesus. That's understandable. But what's especially remarkable is the way she expresses her gratitude. At what is, in the eyes of some commentators, 
a public meal. She takes a jar of very, exp- very expensive fragrant oil and she pours it on the feet of Jesus and then she proceeds to wipe his feet with her hair. Um, that's not normal behavior. Um, I, I hope my wife adores me, but I don't expect her to get the perfume out and pour it on my feet and then wipe them with her hair. It certainly won't happen in the Alexander household. I don't think it'll happen in yours. Here's an act of extreme devotion and adoration. And it's something that, in a sense, we ought to dwell on. We ought to focus on Mary and this amazing love that she has for Jesus. Yet, remarkably, in telling the story, John doesn't allow us to do that. No sooner has Mary done this than John turns our attention to Judas Iscariot. Why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? It's not too difficult to picture the scene. We've all encountered situations where someone looks to pull the rug from under another person. Very deliberately, Judas throws ice-cold water on Mary's act of devotion. Some men have a habit of doing this, especially when women show them up. Most likely, John records this intervention by Judas because it introduces another dimension into the story. It enables Jesus to link Mary's generous act of thanksgiving and adoration with his coming death and burial. The very one who has brought life to Lazarus will die. That's highly ironic. It seems bizarre. Yet John wants us to see something important here. Through his death, Jesus brings eternal life to those who believe in him. Through his death, we have eternal life. It's one of the great ironies of John's gospel. Jesus, as the source of life, must die in order to give life to others. Why is this so? How does John account for this? To explain this, John goes back to the story of the Passover in the book of Exodus. If you read John's gospel, you'll discover that he makes many references to Passover 
For him, it's a key event for understanding Jesus. John compares the death of Jesus to the death of the Passover lamb. You may recall that right at the beginning of John's gospel, John the Baptist twice refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God. And later in the gospel, John notes that the bones of Jesus were not broken when he was executed on the cross. And he draws our attention to the fact that this was true for the Passover sacrifice. Its bones were never broken. So, why associate Jesus with the Passover? If you recall the story from Exodus, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and God sent Moses to rescue them. The Passover was the great event that took place that led to the slaves being set free. Through the Passover, God redeemed the Israelites from the power of a vicious tyrant. And so John associates the idea of redemption from slavery with Jesus. For John, Jesus has come to set people free free from those evil things that ensnare them. All too often, you and I, we find ourselves enslaved by powers that diminish us as real people. Think of the addictions that enslave many people. Addictions to alcohol, to drugs, to gambling, to pornography. Maybe for some it's an addiction to sectarianism. For some, materialism. And perhaps even for some people, that addiction can be religion. How many lives are destroyed by addictions that cannot easily be broken? We can be enslaved by patterns of behavior that we want to be free of. It may be a situation where someone or something has an unhealthy controlling influence over us. Well, John wants to say that Jesus has come to set us free. Free from anything and anyone that enslaves us. Um, As I thought about this, my mind went back to a movie I saw a few years ago. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's, uh, it's maybe not a, a, a PG movie. Um, 
The Shawshank Redemption. Some of you may possibly have seen it. It's set in an American prison uh, to which an innocent banker has been sent after being wrongly convicted for killing his wife. The banker, Andy, maintains his innocence and he finds a way of surviving 19 years in the harsh prison before eventually escaping and making a new life for himself. He creates a deep bond with one of the other prisoners, Red, played by Morgan Friedman. But during his time in prison, Andy on occasions brings hope to those around him. Towards the end of the film, he escapes. And almost towards the last scene of the film, Red is set free. And he has these words that Morgan Friedman can say so well, and I'll only uh, suffer, I I, I won't even uh, get near to the way that he'll express them. But here's what he says. I find I'm so excited that I can barely sit still and hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it's been in my dreams. I hope. Jesus sets us free. And he gives us a hope that goes far beyond that of red. But the Passover story is about much more than simply slaves being set free. It also speaks of being ransomed from the power of death. One of the unusual elements of the Passover story is the way in which the firstborn male Israelites are threatened with death. Now, this is unexpected. Um, We might expect God to punish the male-born Egyptians, but why threaten to put to death the firstborn Israelite males? Why does the Passover need to take place to save them from death. Well, it draws attention to the fact that every human being needs to be ransomed from the domain of death. As the Bible underlines, due to our sin, we are all condemned to death. Through the Passover sacrifice, 
those who are condemned to death are delivered. Christ dies in our place so that we're not condemned to death. We're redeemed from slavery to evil powers. We're ransomed from the power of death. But there's something else. Passover also entails being cleansed from the defilement of human wrongdoing. Do you recall how the sacrificial blood was taken and painted on the doorframe of the Israelite homes? This action is meant to symbolize that those who pass through the door, those who are within the home, are cleansed from the stain of sin. This need to be cleansed because of sin is a recurring motif within the Bible. Think of Isaiah 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. A clear conscience is vital if we're to enjoy life to the full. Jesus enables us to have a clear conscience. Perhaps one of the best illustrations of how sin stains us comes in Shakespeare's Shakespeare's play, Macbeth. Macbeth murders with the help of his wife, Duncan. And he discovers the king's blood on his hands. And he comments, Will all Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? And answering his own question, Macbeth says, No, this my hand will rather make the green one red. The ocean won't take away the stain of sin. Macbeth is very conscious of how Duncan's murder has stained him. Lady Macbeth is initially much less troubled. In time, however, her blood-stained hands return to haunt her. Later in the play, we witness her rubbing them together in a vain attempt to remove the stain of sin. Her guilty conscience troubles her. Not surprisingly, the doctor comments. Foul whisperings are abroad. 
Unnatural deeds do breed unnatural troubles. Infected minds to their death pillows will discharge their secrets. More needs she the divine than the physician. Shakespeare tellingly captures how the stain of sin cannot be easily washed away. He understands that it's not easy to cleanse a guilty conscience. Your GP can't heal it. No matter how much we may wish to forget past actions, our conscience will not let us rest in peace. Sin stain needs something special to remove it. To this end, the substitutionary death of Jesus cleanses us from the pollution of sin. John takes this Passover and he applies it to Jesus. John looks to tell us some important things about the life-giving power of Jesus. He redeems us from the power of evil. He ransoms us from the power or the penalty of death. And he cleanses us from the stain of sin. That's part of what Jesus does as the one who is the source of life. The one who gives us abundant life. We began with Mary and Judas. I want to take you back to them as I finish. With Mary and Judas, we can contrast two responses to Jesus. One of devotion and one of betrayal. One of overwhelming generosity that costs Mary the equivalent of a year's salary. And one of selfish greed that causes Judas to sell Jesus to his opponents for 30 silver coins. And if you do your sums, you'll discover that Judas betrays Jesus for about a third of what Mary lavishes upon him. Brothers and sisters, let's follow the example of Mary. Let's give ourselves to Jesus in devotion and in adoration. Let us appreciate that he is the one who gives us eternal life. Let's pray together.
our loving Father, we come to you conscious that we are fallen creatures whose lives need to be transformed by the power of Jesus. And we thank you for how John portrays to us a Savior who has the power to deliver us from evil. The power to save us from the penalty of death and the power to cleanse us from the stain of sin. Loving Father, we thank you for such a Savior. In Christ's name, amen.